Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Our podcasts are made possible in part by corporate sponsor, Store My Tumor. So we're super excited because survivingbreastcancer.org is here in Miami with Thriver, amazing woman. Can I call you an activist? Like, you know, what do we want? We want research. When do we want it? We want it now. We chanted stage four needs more. Don't ignore stage four. You know, all those catchy phrases. Stage four, of course, is the only stage of breast cancer that is 100% fatal. It kills everyone who has it. And we get maybe one to 2% of the funding. In 2018, stage four metastatic breast cancer surpassed lung cancer and is now the number one killer of women in the cancer. Um, I I believe it's still heart attacks for women, right? It's still the number one killer overall, but in the US in terms of cancer, it's now breast cancer. If it was your mother, if it was your wife, if it was your daughter, if it was your son, if it was you, would those percentages be okay? We talk about stage four, the role of caregiving, and so much more. Welcome to the conversation. So just to let our listeners know, kind of like the, the nuts and bolts of, you know, an introduction of yourself and your diagnosis and prognosis and okay. where you are now. And then the other topic I wanted to chat about, which I loved hearing about these like demonstrations you were. The die-ins. The die-ins. Yes. So I've never heard of that before. So I would love to capture that. Okay. And I know William started to ask you some questions yesterday also about the role of caregiving. And you said a shocking statistic about how almost, was it 50% of women are, you hear their stories about how their partners have left after their diagnosis. And that was just a shocking statistic to me. So I wanted to hear more about what you're hearing along those lines. You and I are both in very supportive relationships, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and it was something that didn't even cross my mind when I got diagnosed. Maybe it was me being naive, but I remember being diagnosed and I'm like, William, we're going out to dinner. I need like a bottle of wine. Something just <laughs> happened and we have to talk about it. So it was the opposite of like, I just got a breast cancer diagnosis. We're going on a date. Uh-huh. And, you know, so I think those were some of the topics I wanted to capture that we haven't yet talked about on the podcast. And I think it's enabling us to give a voice to people who, you know, may not come give a voice to people so they know they're not alone in that situation sure yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah that's kind Um, of the big picture so like where to start with all of that um so I graduated from law school in 2002 and initially I had done some uh for about five or six years I did uh personal injury so did a lot of medical malpractice and car accidents and that sort of thing so it gave me a little bit of an intro into just the world of medicine, which wasn't a Mm. big uh, part of growing up. So I think that's helped me now with dealing with all these doctors and things like that. Um, Actually understand HIPAA, which is something no one really (laughs) understands. Um, So, but then I switched over in, um, let's see, 07, I think it was, to doing uh, family law, which encompassed Mm. divorces and it encompassed uh, working with kids in foster care. So I got a lot of unfortunately experience working with Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and all of that so sometimes I think all the strange paths my legal career took me actually prepared me better for dealing with all of the stuff that I'm dealing with now um, after being diagnosed with cancer so 
When I found out that I was stage four, um, my very first thought was just, I want to spend as much time with my kids as possible. And when my doctor said two to three years, um, of course, that felt like it wasn't near enough time. Uh, my kids at that point were, um, gosh, they were two and four. Um, at that point, they're about to turn six and four, which is amazing. Um, but that led me to shutting down my law practice in terms of practicing law for money um, because I'm still practicing law. I mean, sometimes I tell people I'm a recovering attorney, <laughs> but I'm still practicing law in the fact that um, I'm helping a bunch of nonprofits um, with random legal questions that they would spend hundreds of dollars and I can just say yes or no and they're done and that is great. Um, I'm delving into the world of trademarks, which is interesting because a lot of these nonprofits never trademarked their images um, and then people are taking them and using them and they're not getting any money for that. So um, they asked me, hey, do you think you could do this? So I called up a friend of mine who does trademarking and she's like, oh yeah, you can figure it out. And so she gave me the step-by-step -step to do it, which is about, I think they charge like two to $3,000 to do that for people. So um, yeah, so that makes me feel like I'm helping them and doing something that is helpful. We're going to expand on the role of the caregiver in the course of our conversations, but as you're here now, we want to capture you and, and uh, have some words of wisdom from you. Okay. The, the, the joys, the difficulties, <laughs> the, uh, the techniques that you've used, etc. Just, just to... Uh, His technique is just nodding. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, darling. What, 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 what do you need? That's, that's basically it. Uh, right, right. Uh, no, I mean, I think, you know, obviously it has, um, when, when uh, someone has a, that you love and care about has a diagnosis um, like this, obviously it, um, you know, there are, there are tons of challenges, um, but, you know, you, you want to support that person and, and try to, as best you can, you can't really put yourself in that person's shoes, but um, as best you can, you know, empathize with what they're going through, and so... Um, you know, you do what you, you can to, to support that person and um, give, them, give them room to sort of do what, what they want to do and um, what they want to be involved in and to provide that support. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult. There, there, there are times when, um, you know, you kind of just would want things to, to be the way they were where it's like, you know, gosh, It was it, we, we were just clicking and everything was 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 rolling along and um, you're now faced with a new reality. But uh, but you know you adjust and uh, you love the person so you 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 stick it out and do what you need to do. So so in particular some of the some of the some of the uh, the ways and means you went about supporting her very specifically. There's um, it seems that there's an awful lot of of spouses or partners or girlfriends or boyfriends who or and family members who can't seem to function in that role and i think a lot of that is just they're so overwhelmed so what in particular were you able to do that um that really supported your wife and 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 the, and the benefits obviously of these two beautiful children and this incredible relationship not only between you and your wife but between you and your wife 
and her parents in particular. Right, right, <laughs> right yes. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's a little bit of, of different things. Um, I think um, for me, it's having um, some time to sort of, I don't know, sort of decompress on my own, sort of away, sort of recharge. Um, and that might just be going to the, to, to the nearby Starbucks and, and you know, reading or, or, or doing whatever. Um, I think um, it's also sort of understanding that, you know, um, based on what uh, Abigail's going through, you have to uh, give her some space also to feel what she's feeling. Um, but also to sort of be very aware of kind of what... Uh, you know, kind of what 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 kind of day she's having, what kind of night she's having. If she needs me to sort of be, you know, more attentive, closer, you know, um, it's also sort of understanding that um, you know the boys take a lot of energy, <laughs> and and so right right especially those two, and so um, it's also okay. I'm gonna you know whereas we kind of maybe had a sort of set up before where okay she sort of handles these things and you know maybe I'm now gonna have to start doing doing more and I think sometimes that's making that conscious effort to say okay you know now I'm gonna have to give them a bath every night whereas you know maybe that's what she did before or maybe I'm gonna have to start you know taking them somewhere staying with them when she's going off to do something so so, uh, so sometimes it was communication between you and sure. Abigail, and sometimes it wasn't. You were just figuring it out. Did you right. spend any time um, studying uh, breast cancer, and did you spend any time studying caregiving, and, and uh, or were you simply developing that, that your conceptualization of, of what that was all about as you rolled into it? Right. I think for me it was sort of feeling it out to be honest, yeah. on my own and kind of understanding what yeah. what what is going to work and what's not going to work. What um, hasn't worked? Um, <laughs> wanting, wanting things to do, 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 do things my way and, and her saying, no, that's not the way it is. Um, well, you have a very strong wife. So. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. That's, uh, they, this, uh, other people have said that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, but that's okay. Uh, you know, I kind of knew what... Uh, you know who she was before uh, we got married, and so um, so that that's okay. I kind of knew that that was just a part of, of it all. But and you also have experience with caregiving with your dad. Uh, well, yes, yes, dad. that is that is true. That's a good point. So my dad um, was living with me for several years. Um, he had uh, three strokes, and so it got to the point where he was. Uh, first not he wasn't able to to walk and move around and then it got to the point where he wasn't able to even feed himself and so that was while I was still working um, I had to also figure out okay how 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 is he gonna you know um, be taken care of how is he going to, to eat so for 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 quite some time I was actually Helping him, going on walks with him, and walking with him, I was also helping um, helping him eat, feeding him, uh, changing him, um, giving him baths, and so yeah. So that that sort of um, you know sort of laid the, the 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 framework or the groundwork for me to be able to sort of say, okay, this is just something else I'm gonna you know have to do. Um, now, thankfully, obviously, Abigail's had some surgeries that's 
caused her to not be able to, to, to walk and, and, and things like that. But um, for a while, she was in a wheelchair and stuff. So, um, but, uh, you know, obviously, she's not to the point where she can not feed herself or anything like that. But yeah, I think that sort of definitely laid the, the, the groundwork for me to be able to say, okay, um, you know, this is, this is, this is a part of, of what it is. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, I, I think that, that definitely helped as well. And, and the other side of that caregiving is that you're in this fabulous relationship, again, not only with Abigail, but with her family. Mm -hmm. You're actually living with her mother and father and this beautiful condominium mm -hmm. in, in Miami. Mm -hmm. And speak to that relationship as well. It's a, it seems to be a real fostering, nurturing yeah, they, yeah, they, uh, Abigail's parents have been great. I mean, even before when we were living up in Orlando, um, they would come up, you know, once she was diagnosed, they would come up almost every weekend and she was going through chemo um, and radiation. And so um, her mom and I sort of took turns. I was still working again full time. So um, her mom and I basically took turns going to all her appointments with her. Beautiful. So, um, and then when she was going through chemo, we always, you know, maybe one of us or both of us were there um, at, at, you know, at, at all times when she had hospital stays. So, um, so yeah, they, they've been great. They came up, you know, like I said, almost every weekend. And then um, it got to the point where I think um, we decided that it was probably best to um, get some even more additional support. Um, they were sort of in transition themselves, and so they um, they said, "Well, why don't you guys move down here?" Which which was not easy. Um, it was definitely not an easy uh, transition for me. I, I um, you know I was working up there, and so I wasn't sure exactly how that was going to work and how I was going to be able to transition that easily down here. But thankfully, my um, my work was really supportive. My my job and, and the folks there. Um, and so they allowed me to, to move down. Um, and, and, you know, it turns out that it's, it's been great because with the boys, um, we have uh, other family that can help pitch in and kind of, you know, if, if Abigail's not feeling well, then there's somebody else here that can kind of look out for her or maybe go to pick up the boys and, and things like that. So, uh, so no, overall, I mean, I think it's, it's been good. Um, and we continue. Two last questions for you. Uh, one is um, on a cost-benefit uh, analysis. You've given us the cost. What's the benefit of being such an incredible caregiver? What's the benefit? Yeah, to you. Oh. Um, we know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, to me, it's uh, keeping our uh, family strong, and it's it's keeping our kids, you know, uh, with us and uh, being cared for by uh, the folks that we, the family and the folks that we want um, to be taking care of them. Um, and at the end of the day, that's my biggest focus. And that's the biggest, you know, I think benefit to me is um, I'll do whatever I need to do to make sure that we're all together and that uh, she's taken care of. And in a way that, that helps me, that, that helps me a tremendous amount too by just you know, lifting some of the burden um, from me. And the last question is, what words of advice do you have for someone who is about to become a caregiver that may be apprehensive about stepping into the, those shoes? Um, well, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, take it a step at a time. Um, 
don't try to uh, rush to, to, to do it all by yourself and figure it all out by yourself right away. Um, you know, um, you know, t take take it take it slowly. See what see what you can do. I mean, obviously, be there to, to support the, the person. Um, but you know, having it all figured out perfectly and, and having it all laid out, and you know, you're you're, you're going to make mistakes. But um, but you know, it's it's not as daunting, or, or or hopefully, it's not as even though it might be daunting, it's not as um, as scary maybe as as you might you might think it is once you start. And once you sort of get accustomed and sort of readjust, um, so you know, I'd say, I'd say, uh, you know, go for it, do what you have to do, and and um, and you know, things will things will work out. Well, along those caregiver lines, um, I remember William. You almost had to play the bad cop as the role of the caregiver. So I wanted to be social. Oh. I wanted to have friends over. I remember when I got diagnosed, it was approaching the holidays with like Thanksgiving and oh, like, okay. Christmas and New Year's and so we were hosting I wanted to host like we do almost every year a vegan Thanksgiving and we invite our friends over and I was like you know what just because I'm going through chemotherapy and I have breast cancer we're still moving on with life as planned and so we invite all of my friends over oh, for a vegan Thanksgiving <laughs> William did all of the cooking which I like to take take credit for <laughs> did all of the cooking and what it must have been approaching midnight it was extraordinarily late for me but i was having so much fun just talking with everybody and then finally you can see it in your eyes when that like sleep just hits you you're like i'm out and william had to be the bad cop and say you know what guys i'm glad everyone is having a great time because no one wanted to leave no one was starting that path of like oh it's getting late let's start leaving so William was like, I'm putting her to bed. You all have to go. <laughs> you know, and so I think that's also an important position, yes. too, for the caregiver to also acknowledge um, when to ask for help and then when to say, you know what, she needs her sleep. You yes. can't come visit. Or, you know, that's great. You want to bring over some meals. How about, you know, I'll pick them up from your house. We can't have visitors. And also knowing when to say no. Yes. So I just wanted to add that antidote, too, from our experience. Yes, absolutely. I almost feel like you've taken on this role of like, I want to be arrested because we need to make change. And how can we have this like, I don't know, amazing like social justice activist work of like letting, not just raising awareness, but like letting legislators know, letting people who actually have the decision making and monetary authority to implement this change um, at the expense of you know our health. Right. I would love for you to just kind of talk more about that because it's sure. such an important piece um, that goes well beyond just the awareness. Absolutely. What is the the um, comment that well-behaved women rarely change the world, I think? Um, and, and I feel like maybe that's the theme for, for my life because uh, I, I rarely do what's expected of me. Um, and some of that I think is the way I was raised, being homeschooled, kind of not being part of the establishment as it were. But. Um, MedUp is a 501c3 that was founded by a lawyer whose focus was um, civil rights. And um, I think that a lot of her perspective came from her work um, in working with people who were um, sidelined, who were not um, able to participate in the mainstream. So it is patterned after ACT UP, which is a group... Um, and I don't remember when exactly they were operating, but it, it has to do with raising awareness for the AIDS epidemic, okay. where um, 
it was not being addressed. And I think a lot of that was because the population was um, some a population that people wanted to ignore. And so MetUp, patterned after ACT UP, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, it, it, the idea is that direct action um, is sometimes more effective. Um, certainly there are those people who get inside organizations and work from within to change that. Um, those people have so much more patience than I do. Um, and, uh, you know, being able to work with people where you don't agree with what they're doing, I, I don't have that gene. I, I don't know why. But um, so die-ins are designed to be, you know, as much in your face as possible, somewhat like a sit-in where you're physically obstructing um, someone from doing something. And so the first die-in I participated in was in D.C., um, as part of uh, the MetaViver Stampede. So every year, MetaViver uh, puts together as many stage four people as possible to go talk to legislators in D.C. And so as part of that, we did the die-in. So we gathered at a hotel and we marched uh, for, I think it was about a half a mile from the hotel to the lawn in front of the Capitol, in a uh, Capitol building in D.C. And uh, so we were marching and shouting, um, you know, what do we want? We want research. When do we want it? We want it now. We chanted stage four needs more. Don't ignore stage four. You know, all those catchy phrases. Um, I got goosebumps. It was amazing. It was, I have to say that I understand how mobs happen where it's just like everybody's together and the energy level and everybody's yelling. And it was, um, yes, goosebumps all the way. It, it was, it was amazing. Um, I don't know how much of that really did much of anything except for us to kind of just get us all in the right mood. Um, so we marched for about a half a mile and then um, everybody walked onto the lawn in front of the Capitol and laid down and we had them laying in concentric circles down the, the lawn. Uh, everyone was handed a piece of paper with a person's name on it who had passed away in 2018 since the previous die-in. And um, there were a couple of speakers. Uh, we played a song that was specifically written for MetUp, and it's, it talks about the day that you hear us um, and how the camaraderie among um, people who have stage four is so significant, but that at some point you have to hear us, and at some point you have to save our lives. And then we rang a gong, uh, one uh, for every person who died, on that day so at that point in 2018 it was 114 people who die every day of stage four metastatic breast cancer unfortunately here in 2019 it's 116 people a day so we're actually going up um stage four of course is the only stage of breast cancer that is 100 percent fatal it kills everyone who has it and we get maybe one to two percent of the funding um which is we believe completely the wrong perspective um and so that particular um event and and holding up the signs of all the people that we lost is designed as kind of an in-your-face these are the people who have died um at the san antonio breast cancer symposium we had a mini die-in where we held up signs and we talked to the um the researchers um, we did a little bit of disrupting people being able to get to certain drug company tables um, because we very much believe that the drug companies are part of the 
problem in that uh, they're not funding the research that's really needed for stage four. And, and I get that it's hard because we're a somewhat small population. There's only about 155,000 people in the U.S. living with stage four metastatic breast cancer. But in 2018, stage four metastatic breast cancer surpassed lung cancer and is now the number one killer of women in the cancer. Um, I, I believe it's still heart attacks for women, right? It's yeah, still the number one too. killer overall. But in the U.S. in terms of cancer, it's now breast cancer. Yes. Worldwide, it's, it's heart attack and then followed yeah. by breast cancer. And just uh, to, to give perspective to that, 250 plus thousand women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year, next year, then next year, and that keeps climbing. It does. So. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's almost like we're moving in the opposite direction that we need to be. Right. Now, the oncologists will say that because our population has grown, that the, the actual incidence of... Uh, Percentage-wise, if you look at the whole population in terms of cancer, has gone down to a certain extent. And so we had several people come up to us and say, but, you know, we're actually making headway, blah, blah, blah. And every time people do that, I look them in the eye and I say, well, if it was your mother, if it was your wife, if it was your daughter, if it was your son, if it was you, would those percentages be okay? And I think that's the piece that, yes, you can look at statistics and feel good about statistics and all of that, but when it hits you or hits your family and it's that close to home, I think people have a different perspective. And so I think that's why, in a lot of ways, people with stage four are very vocal and typically very um, more on the activist side, maybe more so than early stagers, because I think that we, we have a certain level of desperation. We have a certain level of Oh, wait a minute, my lifespan used to be 30, 40, 50 years, and now I'm looking at two to three years as the median. Um, there was a study that recently came out, I'm not remembering the name of it, but um, they looked longitudinally at people with different types of metastases, and people like me with bone-only metastases tend to have a bit longer than the two to three years. Um, I'm HER2 negative, which is a particular receptor, and again, that typically tends to be something with a bit longer of a lifespan. However, I am hormone positive, which means that estrogen and progesterone feeds my cancer. And even though I've had a hysterectomy and I'm on an aromatase inhibitor that's supposed to keep all of that estrogen away, there are still other glands in your body that produces estrogen. And so there's still some estrogen hanging out. Exactly. Exactly. There are all kinds of phytoestrogens running around out there. So I try to stay up on all of that as much as possible, and I get my blood tested regularly yes. to see what's going on with the estrogen in my body. But um, Can you speak to clinical trials uh, specifically geared towards um, stage four? So that has been increasing, and one of the things at San Antonio um, – Two or three years ago, they would talk all about all the research that they were doing, and then stage four would be mentioned maybe like the last day. This year in San Antonio, day one, front and center, they were talking about the research into stage four. There, there's a doctor, Kelly Shanahan, who she was a breast cancer surgeon, I believe, and then she was diagnosed with stage four. She talks about looking at it from the perspective of triage, right? If somebody comes into your ER and they are immediately dying versus somebody who could die in 10 years, who are you going to treat first, right? And if you think about it from that perspective, of course they should be looking at stage four first. I also believe that 
if they solve the issue of metastases, then that is going to trickle down to everyone else because all the early stagers still have a 30% chance of becoming metastatic. So there are more studies. Um, I keep hearing that um, you know they'll have these studies, but then they don't have enough enrollment. And so one of the big things they talked about in San Antonio was how do we get the word out? And what was fascinating, I don't know if you've heard of the Broad Institute up in Harvard, but they have the Count Me In Project, mm-hmm. which is um, all patients who have contributed our tissue, blood, saliva, et cetera, they have put that into a database and then it's all free. They, they release all that data regularly. Mm-hmm. And that data now is being used because it's all stage four people. It's now one of the largest databases of all that information down to mutations and genomic information and all of that. So I think that we are at a good place in that the, the wave of cooperation is rising. And I think that's very good, but you still have these silos. You still have Mayo doesn't share with Sloan Kettering and Sloan Kettering doesn't share with MD Anderson and those kinds of things because they have all of their proprietary information, which I understand, but the opportunities for collaboration are not always there. And so one of the big things I heard from researchers is that those conferences are amazing because they can talk about this wonderful breakthrough in this lab and then this lab can piggyback on that and not duplicate efforts and those kinds of things. So it it seems like there's a lot more of that happening. Um, The positivity around data collection and data sharing, which, you know, is is the benefit of... To everyone. Absolutely. To everyone. And I, I did not understand clinical trials as being not something for the very end. And so I think a lot of people think, oh, if all of my medication doesn't work, then the, the very end point is going to be a clinical trial. And certainly if you are, I believe it's if you have a life expectancy of six months and the um, drug company gives you a letter, you can apply for a compassionate use through the FDA, meaning there's a trial that you don't quite qualify for But if the drug company agrees, the FDA will approve you to actually get whatever is in the trial as kind of a last-ditch effort. And so there's been a lot of people who have benefited from that. Um, But trials really are there for people even, you know, on a second or third stage. Um, One of the issues for stage four people is that typically they don't want you to participate in a trial if you've tried three or four or five different lines of treatment. And a lot of that is to keep their data pure um, so that it's not interfered with by you've had all these other things going on. But I know that that's also something that a lot of the patient advocates are trying to help drug companies understand is that we don't a lot of times have control over how many lines of treatment we're put on, right? right? And go ahead. Yeah, 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 no, you're fine. my memory and I... Again, I'm not sure if it was you, so I apologize if you were telling me this information. <laughs> I'm just regurgitating it. Or, you know, I was talking to somebody else in the breast cancer community who was informing me about treatments and staging. So mm-hmm. they were actually denied more advanced treatment um, and more modern treatment because they haven't gone through, let's say, tamoxifen or the Taxol or these various um, older therapies. Mm-hmm. that have their benefits, but they were actually denied access to more relevant treatment because of the staging progression that they had to go through first before getting to the upper levels. Um, so I'll have to go back and find where that article was yeah. because I never heard of this and it infuriated me of like, 
you know, again, we were talking even last night about the, like, 3D mammography. Like, uh-huh. you know, if there is new technology out there and new treatments and new advancements, why do we still have to be kind of left in the dark ages and go through these older processes Until first? we get there. Until we get there, exactly. I suspect that insurance companies are part of that because until something, you, you have a lot of off-label treatments, right? That that a drug has been developed for X, but then they realize that it could help Y. And until the FDA has approved some of those things, typically the, the um, insurance companies won't pay for it. And so a lot of times you're fighting to get treatment, but then you're also fighting to get it paid for. Yes. Um, but one thing I, I did notice in San Antonio as well that um, you have the rise of the CDK4-6 inhibitors, the yes. iBrands, your Kisqually, your Verzenio, which being endocrine therapy has been very effective for a lot of people with stage four. And they're rapidly now studying it in early stage people. And so I do know several people who are stage two or three who were able to get into trials where they were looking at iBrands specifically. I know one person who couldn't get into the trial, but she fought her drug company all the way up, I think, through three or four appeals to be able to take iBrands as an early stage person because she, I believe, is triple negative. Mm. And the unfortunate thing with triple negative, negative for estrogen, negative for progesterone, and negative for her too, new, is that there aren't receptors to target, and so there are very few drugs that work for them. So... You know, it really takes people getting educated and then advocating for themselves a lot of times to get, to be able to take some of the medication that could save their lives. So an educated patient advocate population, I believe, is what will help turn the tide to some, for some of that. One thing we realize with a lot of the researchers is that they hardly ever talk to patients. Yes. And so they're in a lab. And they're all excited about the fact that the mouse model did X, Y, and Z. And I'm sure that that's very exciting for them. But the the translation of that into real world stuff is often what they're missing. And so, so many of the researchers we talked to in San Antonio were like, oh, thank you for sharing that perspective. And so I know there's been a big wave to, in a lot of the research institutions, to get the patient advocates part of even the designing the research project. Because that extra perspective, I think, is very helpful. So. Exactly. As an educated patient, we can be we can advocate for ourselves. Uh-huh. But I'm also thinking, too, as you know, spreadingbreastcancer.org is young in what I'm calling its like incubator phase, its infancy phase of growing as a nonprofit. What I'm also hearing is that if you are not in a position to advocate for yourself, how can you get these like clinics or other organizations or other um, nonprofits to be your voice? In creating some of this change so that's just something I'm going to keep in the back of my head too as we're continuing yeah. to have these conversations and going back to the life expectancy I know it's also important what you are talking about in terms of statistics that you know two to three years how that number decreases potentially in other um, cultures and populations mm-hmm. and so I think that's another important factor of understanding kind of like the culture assimilation of how breast cancer diagnosis um, changes based on you know diet behavior culture genetics sure i wish there was a formula so we could actually understand how all of that works but the statistics that were presented at the um, san antonio breast cancer symposium is that african-american women uh, die almost twice as fast as caucasian women Um, hispanic women are in the middle Um, but still don't typically live as long as Caucasian women. And 
I am sure there's a variety of reasons and a variety of things, but um, several of the studies that were presented, especially out of China, it, it was interesting then the discussion about, well, wait a minute, Asian physiolo physiology is different from someone who is from Europe or someone who's from Africa. And just the, the ability to apply the results from different studies to other populations is just a thorny question, especially when you're looking globally, that there's just so many variations there. And one other thing that I discovered in one of my groups was that whenever the U.S. puts sanctions against a particular country, um, the drug manufacturers will not sell their medicine to that particular country. And so it was not too, too long ago, there were several women who were talking about how Ibrance was no longer being sold in whatever country that they lived in mm -hmm. because of the economic sanctions against sure. their country. And so while I absolutely 100% agree that economic sanctions can be very effective, Watching how that trickles down to someone who could literally die because then the drug companies won't sell their product to that particular country is it's horrifying. Really horrifying. Yes. So I'm. You have to draw the line somewhere. There has to be. We we all understand economics, but we also understand humanitarian need. Yes. Yes. When I was in San Antonio, we went to a um, panel, so it was 16, I think, medical oncologists, specifically in the breast cancer piece of the FDA, who sat down with all the patient advocates and talked about their process. And I'm not going to remember all of the steps because there are many. But the thing that I took away from that panel was the, I think we forget that there are some really amazing people who work at the FDA mm -hmm. and who are working so hard to make sure that drugs are safe. And I think that when you have a terminal diagnosis, again, that desperation, you are, people fly all over the world to mm -hmm. participate in various things that aren't necessarily looked at by the FDA because they're in other countries and other countries don't have the same types of processes. And some of those things are good and some of those things are really scary because they're not regulated. Um, so I cannot pretend to understand all of the intricacies of that, but I can tell you after meeting with these women, and they were all women, which was interesting, um, just how passionate they are about making sure that drugs are safe and making sure that drugs get to the public as soon as possible, but then that they're monitored. So um, it recently came out that the FDA is actually permitted to fine drug companies or places that are doing trials like at an um, academic institution that either don't report on time, don't include something they should have included, basically doing things that they're not supposed to do and that they have actually actively been fining people mm -hmm. for not doing what they are supposed mm -hmm. to do, which they're not perfect. No piece of the government is perfect. No institution is perfect. But at the same time, I felt like there are some people who are really working hard to protect us. And that made me feel a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. I also follow um, Tatiana Powell is one of the medical oncologists in the FDA. And I follow her on Twitter. And I have to say the information that she puts out there is so timely and so just well crafted to make sure that we understand the process. Um, I've also been following Scott Gottlieb. He and I have been having a little bit of a back and forth about medical marijuana and how they need to fix their categorization of medical marijuana as a Schedule One. In all of the trials, 
they talk about progression-free survival. And that's what most of the trials um, target or um, monitor. Um, and one of the, the um, studies that was presented at the conference was it showed that it improved the progression-free survival by 10 months. And the excitement in the room from all of the oncologists was like you could feel it. Mm -hmm. And all of us patients were like, 10 freaking months? And right. so one of the signs that we held up outside when we were doing our little protests was we want years, not months. Right. And so one of the things we were talking about with the FDA was we want them to be looking at overall survival, not progression-free survival. Because a lot of times these studies are not long enough to look at overall survival that really all they can do is measure the progression-free survival. But encouraging them to start looking at overall survival, looking at the longer term, even though that costs more money, um, really is something that those of us in the stage four community want them to be looking at because getting a few more months is not, that's not sufficient. Right. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's very interesting too that you and I were both diagnosed in our 30s mm -hmm. and having this diagnosis when you're like, well, yeah, my life expectancy should definitely be, you know, 50, 60 exactly. years plus. Um, you know, I definitely want to have the 100 year birthday mark. Right. Like triple digits. And then realizing that the medicine and the studies actually haven't caught up to us. We actually don't know the long-term effects of when my oncologist tells me I'm going to be on some of these aromatase inhibitors for 20 years, and then we'll reassess. We don't know actually longitudinally right. what that impact, um, not just from cancer, but the longer-term side effects of bone density and other um, heart disease and kidney failure that are going to be repercussions Yep. Timing is of the essence, though. A lot of these drugs are new, like the exactly. mm -hmm. SG drug, right. however you pronounce it. That's going to be brand new. That'll probably, once it's approved, it'll hit the market in two years, yeah. and there'll be no long term. There's no way to do that. So, yep. uh, yeah, yeah. We, Just waiting. we still have to, to get back to that point, we still have to encourage the release of these, even to save a woman uh, in the shorter term looking to get to that long term. Right. We do have a number of stage four people that are part of the community that have been stage four for years. Yep. Yes, and I definitely want to introduce you um, to this amazing shaman that we keep talking about. <laughs> so she um, She's based out of uh, Staten Island in New York, but she travels. She's a huge um, your resource for us at survivingbreastcancer.org, so I'll put you in touch That'd with her. That'd be awesome, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just a couple other women who have this positive glow and... Um, you know, I was even telling William before we were driving over here, like, I can't wait for you to meet Abigail. Like, every time we talk, like, <laughs> I just, I feel like we've just been smiling for the last, like, 48 <laughs> hours and laughing and sharing just great stories. And that, I think, is what it's all about. And going back to your metaphor of, um, you know, how it's a triage experience that's, you need patients to want to participate in trials. Right. You need people to talk about it. You need doctors to understand our perspective. You need the um, pharmaceutical companies to release these drugs, you need the government to approve it. It's really this interconnected and complex ecosystem that is really so going complicated. To advance yes. where we are. So with Absolutely. That, thank you. Of course. Yeah. What's your name? Malcolm Johnston. How old are you, Malcolm Johnston? Um, you have to say the number. How many numbers is that? One, two. You are right. And thank you, everyone, for listening to our show. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast are from personal experiences and are not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always contact 
your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, please feel free to reach out to me. My email is laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. Until next time, keep on thriving.